October. What's up, baby? All cylinders are firing at this end, baby. 21 days sober today. That's bonkers. What? And just came back from a little Montauk, a little ocean refresh, feeling the vibes of Mother Ocean, feeling totally jazzed up. The ocean just gets me feeling super amped. You're in it, you're by it, it's nonstop waves. It's the ultimate stereo field. No matter where you turn your head, you can hear it, right? It's like the best concert ever. The ocean. 70% of the earth is ocean. Cats and kittens, we be going back into my vaults. I recorded this on July 4th at Rockaway Beach, which is the coolest and best spot in Hold on, I'm going to get my delivery. My delivery just came. Hold on, hold on. This will be part of the recording. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, dudes. Yeah, dudes. It's going down right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the middle of tracking, he just got, I just got an impossible burger, right? Uh, anyway, cats, boom! Where was I? Rockaway Beach, the coolest place in all of New York City. Cool water, the barrier beach, it's the best place to hang out. It's like literally one of the coolest places to hang out, probably in the world. If it's the best place in New York City, that means it's the best place in the world, but you know, that's all right. That's going a little far. It's going a little far. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. July 4th is Sheridice. My dear buddy, the baddest of the bad, the coolest of the cool, Shara Raiden rents a spot. We all go down there and while out for a week. She brought her, her dear friend, Anthony, whom I met and hung out with a bunch of times. And he is rad and he is awesome. And Shara was like, he's got cool stories. Get Anthony on the podcast. Anthony. A trained triple threat had a career as a professional dancer, singer, and actor on the international stage, uh, and then has now translated a lot of those skills into being the concierge, a professional New York City concierge for Tiffany's, which is, you know, as I say in this podcast, because I just re-listened to it, I went for a walk and I was re-listening to this, it's like, it's in a museum, yeah, kind of, to the people without millions of dollars. It feels like a museum. I mean, they're like, this is all crazy, beautiful stuff. So, um, and Anthony is the man, the dude. He's hilarious and entertaining, and he, you get him in a group of people, and he's just making everybody crack up. Uh, this was recorded, you know, in front of basically a bus stop. So listening back to it, it's like a hot, sweaty day. And you just hear. <laughs> which is cool. Uh, and 
That morning he woke up early and made breakfast for everybody. And then I make him talk for like an hour and a half. And he told his really interesting upbringing in Vermont and all of his New York City relations. He's fascinating. Let's get right to it. And I'm going to play you in with a very cool track and then maybe even play you out with it. So thank you to Anthony. Enjoy this. He's fascinating. He's cool. Any of those people, you know, the triple threats, any of those people. I just squeeze the can of my seltzer because I, I'm a, I twist to the left and then I do a smash on the can just naturally from hundreds of years of beer drinking. And shit. And I smashed it before I drank any and then the seltzer just fucking poured out. All right. So you guys enjoy yourself. My Bear Burger Impossible Burger just arrived. I'm clearly going to step into that because Rachel's at some social function. So I'm going to enjoy myself. And I hope you have the best, most awesome day ever. Enjoy this. Looking forward. I got some hot gas coming as well. A little Caleb Holly, a little Beeski. Oh, yeah. Have an awesome, 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 awesome day. And we'll talk soon, huh? We'll talk. You and me, let's talk. Hit me up anytime. Slide into my DMs. Yo, VIP. Stop, collaborate, and listen. Ice is back with a brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow to the extreme. I rock a mic like a vandal, light up the stage. I rock a jump like a candle dance. Caresses me, get that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom, deadly. Wanna play a dope melody? Anything less than the best is a felony. Ooh. Love it or live it. You're better game with. You're better oh. hit bulls at the hit. Don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, baby. Too cold, too cold. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get that? You we got it? all of that. <laughs> Uh, Happy 4th of July, everyone. I am in Rockaway Beach with a, with a renowned super entertainer of all entertainers, Anthony Palinscar. Czar, son of a bitch. <laughs> I asked him to say his name right before we did this. Anthony and still screwed it up. And I got, I got in my head because when Shara and I went shopping, I was like asking her to say it, and then I was doing all these different variations. So I've, I ruined myself with your last name from the Eat moment it. I already shot the, I shot the J, if you will. That's it. So, Anthony, tell us about what your day job is. My day job is as the concierge to a sort of inner sanctum place in luxury hospitality called the Tiffany Salon, which is a private by appointment only selling space within the flagship of Tiffany and Company in New York City. And that is not a gig you just kind of fall into. You don't just wake up and say, I'm gonna do this. No, it's not something that you're just like, I'm gonna seek this out. 
it definitely sought me out. Um, I had been working as a hotel concierge for about two years. And um, I got a call from a headhunter who said that they were looking to find a concierge for the exact space that I just described. And I didn't know whether that was a real thing, whether it was possible, whether it was a smart move, anything yeah. like that. But when they started talking about like, you know, the kind of money that you can make and all that sort of thing, I considered it. And I did some research about the company itself. And I decided, oh, and I had also spoken to a couple other friends in the concierge business who had also gotten a call from the same headhunter. And everybody was like, what do you think? What do you think? And I just kind of played it real smooth and was like, I'm not going to tell anybody yes or no, but I'm going to go for the interview, at least. And I went in and met with an HR person and had a great conversation with them where it was very clear that they knew they wanted a concierge, but they had no idea what that responsibility was going to look like. And... I was going to have the opportunity to sort of create a lot for them because they were counting on me as a reliable concierge to sort of do the concierge thing and implement implement that into the luxury retail world. Mm. So they didn't have a concierge before you. They created Never. you are the first and only. Correct. Wow. And tell us even... In my mind, the concierge is, you're like, you're at the hotel, you say, where's the best spot to go eat? What should we go? Right? That's like entry That's like level. typical concierge work. Typical concierge work. Yeah. Now you're talking about, you've leveled up into this elite yeah, kind of sphere. It's definitely right? a different dichotomy. It's the same work, but with a different nuance. Because when you're in a hotel... You're working for those guests. They yeah. have paid to stay at that establishment. And part of the rate they pay per night goes to the fact that they get a concierge who will recommend them places and get them reservations to places and book tickets for them and car services, whatever the case may be. So when a hotel guest is working with a concierge, they're like the CEO in that situation because mm -hmm. they're making all the shots and you as concierge are doing your best to make them happy. Similarly, in the luxury retail world, I am doing my best to make them happy and they are in essence a CEO, but what they really are is like the visiting like CEO's best friend because they're telling you what they want but Tiffany and company is really like the head of it like they're the in between because the client is there to shop they're there because they do shop they're there because of the experience of purchasing whatever they're purchasing from the company I'm there to up the bonus for being a customer there so they're in a much better mood a lot of the time than a hotel guest. <laughs> yeah, they're, 
You know, if a hotel guest comes to you and their room wasn't ready or their cleaning lady wasn't doing the, well, the, the room the way they wanted it to, they can come to you in, like, bits and pieces and you need to kind of build them up again. Here, everything's, like... They're already, already feeling awesome. Yes, correct. <clears throat> so, if I buy a beautiful ruby or something, mm. be like, do you want to go to the... Knicks game courtside? Do you want to go see <laughs> Hamilton? Right? The, these are your contacts. Your contact base must be... You're it, like the yes. baller of Manhattan. You know everybody. I mean, I have to know a lot of people. Yeah. Because there have been... Uh, across the board, even when I was in hotels, there have been requests that your average person would not know what to do or how to do it. Yes. And in some of those cases, I didn't know when it came to me, but that's what makes me a concierge and makes me know what the job is because I then take that and go, okay, I have no idea what this is, but I'm going to figure it out. Yes, this is my job. <laughs> that's it. To figure this out. Because my reply back needs to be educated and successful and, you know, all the good things. And I think probably Tiffany's, it's like, this is destination shopping. This mm -hmm. isn't just for sure ordering online. You, you're, and you're well, obviously the lens through, I've seen Tiffany's through our friend doing watches. But yeah, this is, there's, what are, so you, is it mostly jewelry? Mostly diamonds? And uh, I think that's maybe the I common, mean, yes, obviously common the, perception. The, the, the area that I specifically work in. I would say is like 99% high-end, like red carpet statement jewelry. Yeah. Um, obviously, the company itself is broad. Uh, they have fashion jewelry, they have diamonds, they have watches, they have home goods, they have leather goods, they have it all. It's a fascinating. It's like, to me, as a normal... Guy. I walk in there and I feel like I'm in a museum. Yes. You know, I feel like you... And honestly, I get a little uncomfortable when I'm surrounded by merchandise that that's that. Right. It, I think it's maybe, you know, watching too many movies. Right. Movie culture. I'm like, someone's going to... There's going to be a heist. Yeah. I'm going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Well, I'll tell <laughs> you, like, I mean, that never goes away. Like, I walk through the space every day, but I'm still very aware that, you know... I'm surrounded by millions of dollars worth of merchandise. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and you can appreciate how people can fall in love with something that's essentially just minerals from mm -hmm. the earth. Like, just the beauty in the way that it's built and put together and the story behind, you know, the craftsmanship and all of that sort of thing is absolutely mind-boggling. Ugh, beautiful. That's amazing. So let's get there. How did we get here? Anthony, raised in Vermont. Yeah, raised. So I was born in New York, raised in Vermont. Were you born not that far from where we are in Rockaway Beach right now? <laughs> I was born at Westchester Hospital. Oh, okay, okay. But um, my family is actually rooted from far Rockaway. My maternal grandparents settled out here uh, in the 40s and they 
made a life out here. This is where my mom grew up. Uh, this is where we would come at summertime to go to the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, family reunions and things like that were often spent out here. So definitely rooted in this very area. Rooted here. Born in Westchester. And then when did you move to Bennington, Vermont? So, although I was born at Westchester Hospital, I was, we were living in Norwalk, Connecticut at the time. Oh. And I was four going on five, I think, when we moved to Bennington, Vermont. My father had gotten a promotion with a company he was working for at the time. And we went. Um... And Vermont is beautiful, beautiful place. Um, it really lent itself to our family dynamic, which I'm 100% thankful to my parents for being the humanitarians that they were mm-hmm. at all times. Um, my brother is seven years older than me, and... My mom tells the story about when we moved to Vermont, if I was four or five, he was 11, 12, and he went to school for the first day and he came back and he said, Mommy, there's no dark people, there's no Spanish people, there's no, like, we're all white. <laughs> like, yeah. he was so <laughs> mind blown. Yeah, because yeah. all of his best friends were, you know, colors of the rainbow. But. That being said, it's still a very liberal, humanitarian place. You know, the conservative side of things are really about, like, how people tend their own lives. But it's like, I do me, you do you, uh, and do the neighborly thing, Mm -hmm. which makes Vermont a really great place to grow up. Yes. And it's, as an upstate New Yorker, I always remember my mother talking about how when... Upstate New York is beautiful, and I think we have similar landscapes, rolling hills, yes. green. Yeah. But then all of a sudden in Vermont, because it was kind of what you were just talking about, it's owned privately, yeah. and it's on the person, yeah. and there's this respect for not just blasting a shitty-looking McDonald's. Yeah. Just your McDonald's were prettier. Yeah, well... It and t- that it extended to the whole landscape correct. of Vermont. Yeah, yeah the funny story about that is, um, so I was in... Bennington proper, which is part of Bennington County, and another part of Bennington County is a town called Manchester, which is probably the closest you'll get to like truly affluent area in Vermont. Yes, as yeah, upstate um, rich, as right. I like to call it. Right? Sure, yeah. and uh, it was years before they would even allow a McDonald's into Manchester, <laughs> and once they finally did. It had the design of the building had to be approved. So if you drive through Manchester, you will see a red brick building with white columns and the whole nine yards, which is the McDonald's. The only re- <laughs> way you'll recognize it is because of the not as large as usual golden arches that are very strategically placed so as not to ruin the landscape. That is, you guys, you guys, that's a cutting edge state like that. Maybe because yeah. it's a smaller state. I mean, Right, the the whole craft beer thing. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's making yeah. your own ice cream, like yeah. own cheeses. Farmers yeah. doing their own. That's yeah. like the the idea of do farm to table. Yeah. is the only way Vermont really is. Uh, every town you go into that has their 
own little diner and their own little restaurants. It's 100%, you know, farm to table. They don't go very far because why? Why? Because it's all right, right there. there. Yeah. Yeah, Vermont is such a special place. Like, a, your idyllic life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it can get boring. It's for sure. Because yeah. if you're living there all the time, especially as a young person, and you are the type of person that prefers at least some kind of nightlife, um, that's not the place to be. <laughs> <laughs> people would, I feel like when I first moved to the city, people were always like, what do you do up there? What do you do up there? And I think I'm slowly coming to the answers. Yeah. Because in my friend group, Everybody played music in the right. 90s. We were just, it was, it didn't matter if you were a jock or yeah. you were, everybody played a little guitar and we yeah. would play music together. And I'm like, maybe that's because we didn't have a mall. It sounds like you found a different avenue, actor, dancing, singing. Yeah. That's where yeah, you kind so of fell into before that. Before I was ever a concierge, my first career was as a performer. That's what I graduated college from or with, whatever. Um... <laughs> So as a young kid in Vermont, my after-school experiences were rooted in dance class, uh, theater rehearsals, um, music rehearsals. Um, those were the things that I did to pass the time as a kid. And by the time I got to like high school age, um, that was clear that it was clear to me that that's what I wanted to do with mm -hmm. my life yeah so that's all I did but it didn't feel so much like school because it was what I loved to do so all of the theater rehearsals and dance classes and everything were just that was my social life yeah and so, of Bennington, Vermont, were you the, the triple threat, the singer, the dancer, leads in all the shows, well, all the way to... Well, I definitely... My first dance class uh, was when I was in the first grade. Um, my sister, who's five years older than me, had a friend who was a neighbor in the neighborhood we lived in, who was in ballet. And one holiday season, she was doing a performance of The Nutcracker. Mm -hmm. And her mother came to my mother and said, would it be okay if I brought Elise, my sister, to see the Nutcracker? And my mom said, yeah, yeah, can you bring Anthony too? Mm. <laughs> like, give mommy a night off. So I went. And when I came back, so the story goes, I told my mom I wanted to be up there doing what they were doing. So I remember distinctly one day getting off the school bus with my friend, thinking I was going to go hang out at his house. My mom was parked at the bus stop. I was like, that's unusual. So I ran up to her and I was like, hey, mom. And she's like, get in. And I was like, no, I'm going to go play with Jeremy. And she's like, no, no, get in. <laughs> so we got in and she took me to no, my first no. dance class. Um, and that was the beginning of the end, as they say. That was it? Mm-hmm. I was so taking you, tap that first year and then tap and jazz and tap jazz and ballet. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. Third grade. Um, was it? And Sorry. Well, that's, that's fascinating because I'm spilling coffee all over myself. Was that like, you know, so it's a smaller town. Was it like the same woman man who taught the same class? 
There was, a, and then they they rope you in in those dance programs. You, it's like you're in. Oh, you're good. Right now, you're here seven days a right, week. Right, was right. it that you were on like that track? Where yeah, I mean, I got into that first tap class, and I guess it just sort of naturally came to me, and obviously the dance teacher spoke with my mom and was like. He's good. He can be even better. He should do more. And yeah. my mom was like, great. <laughs> Take him. <laughs> you know, yours. fill up his time. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Um, when did you start then acting? Other things, yeah. So then third grade, I guess this was just like the way it worked in our school district. There was one music teacher for the Bennington School District. Mrs. Crosscup. And she was, her flagship essentially was my elementary school, but she went to all of the elementary schools and taught music. And in third grade, uh, when you go into music class, um, she then quote unquote auditions you, which basically meant like she teaches everybody some basic song like Senor Dungato was the cat, kind of like elementary school type of thing. And then she goes up and down the line as everybody's singing and listens to your voice to see if you can actually carry a tune. Cutthroat. And if you can, she asks you if you want to be a part of the school chorus, just like within your school. And uh, if you do and you can, then she has like a rehearsal once a week for a couple months where you learn the songs and we had a bunch of like those wooden xylophone things and she would teach you how to play those so you could accompany accompany yourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was within the school itself. Then there was a bigger picture called the Bennington School District Chorus, which was made up of kids from each of the schools that she taught. And that was an after-school program where you met only like three or four times in a um, semester, if you will, um, and learned music and then did a, a performance at the end, usually like a Christmas performance and then a spring performance. Um, so that was third grade and fourth grade. Fourth grade, the high school was doing production of The Wizard of Oz. Mm. And they reached out to Mrs. Crosscup saying, you know, they wanted to fill out their cast with some kids to be the Munchkins. So they auditioned Bennington School District choir kids to be Munchkins, which I landed in the Lollipop Guild, which was coveted, of course. It's a hot role. Yeah, this is your big break. <laughs> this is just grade. any Munchkin. Yes. It's the Lollipop Guild. Um, but what was interesting about that was I was in the fourth grade and I was in a high school production, so we had to go to rehearsals from time to time. And the kids who were the high school students were in school with my brother and sister. Yeah. So I immediately felt like I was the coolest. The because, coolest cat. <laughs> yeah. Because they were like, oh, well, you're Paul and Elise's little brother. Yeah. Then <laughs> everything just snowballs. Yeah. We did Wizard of Oz. It went great, felt great. The following year, no, two years later, um, the high school was doing a play called The Desperate Hours, 
which is a 1950s story about some bank robbers who, running from the cops, dive into a 1950s nuclear family home and basically hold them hostage in their home uh, so that they don't call the cops. And the cops won't, of course, think of looking for them there because it's just a random family on the side. And there's the part of the young son in the play. And the director, a high school play director, remembered me from Wizard of Oz and reached out to my mom and said, you know, would it be okay if, if if Anthony did this part? Which was literally just like being on stage the whole time and having like two or three lines here and there. Um, but my mom said, if you want to do it, you can do it. So that was like the first time being on stage without dancing, without singing, nothing, but like learning what it is to act. Yeah. Stagecraft. Yeah. You're very young to be in that environment at this point in time. And what I always, as a musician, the little dabbling I've done in acting and stuff is that it, you guys just re- rehearse so hard and so long and yeah. so many hours. Yeah. Yeah, it's very exacting. <laughs> like, you can work on one to two pages of script for a full day. Forever. Just yeah. to, like, get the timing right and the movements right and everything. So you're a fourth grader. You have the patience. To, and that's probably a month. Desperate hours. I was in sixth going on seventh grade. Sixth grade. That's so, still like, still, really I was young. 11 years old. 10, 11 years old. To be just around... That matured you probably pretty. It got me... What it did is it got me into it. You thought you were the coolest, and now you know you're the coolest. Right. Like (laughs) Now I was actually learning craft. Yeah. Not just like, this is fun, and I'm good at it. Um, And I think that was really where my mom was like, no, this is what he wants to do, and he's going to want to continue this. And we were very lucky. There was a... um, an equity house in Bennington called the Old Castle Theater Company, which my parents volunteered for, you know, running box office and things like that from time to time. So we would go see shows here and there. Mm-hmm. And it was at that time that they, the, the professional company, started their own youth theater uh, summer program. And so that was really like solidifying the deal because suddenly in the summers you were in a program that were all students whose passion was to do this. It was no longer like you were shuffled in with a bunch of like in school stuff that some people there might not actually be into it. To choose to do a theater program over in the summer means like you're a kid who like this is what you wanted Loves to do. This, yes. And they brought up a professional director, musical director, and choreographer from New York to Whip run you that guys program into shape. Yeah. through the summer. And at the end of the summer, we would do a full scale production. And they had budget, so we had like real sets and real costumes that were made for us and stuff like that. So you started to learn what it was really like to. <clears throat> be in a company and get into it that way. So this planted the seeds. Yeah. And then did you study the... I always call you guys the triple threats. Yeah. Or did you specifically do dance in your collegiate study then? 
So when I graduated for college, or graduated from high school going to college, I knew I wanted to go into the arts. And um, what became clear to me was there was a lot more opportunity as a male to get into a school with some scholarship if you stuck with dance. Yes. So my mega plan in my mind was I was going to audition as a dancer to the schools I was interested in. Mm -hmm. But in my interviews, I was going to inquire as to whether or not you could dance and do theater at the same time. Mm -hmm. Which was actually the smartest thing I ever did because I auditioned for three schools and two of the schools I auditioned for were not keen on the crossover. They were like, you're either a theater person or you're a dancer. Mm. We, don't, we don't cross. We don't intermingle, yeah. But when I auditioned for Marymount Manhattan College, um, dumb luck. I, they were having an uh, orientation day for like, you know when you're looking at schools, you start to um, receive the invites to like orientation days where you're not accepted to the school yet, but you're allowed to go so you can check out the campus and you get tours and things like Field that. Vibe, yeah, yeah. Right. Go find so, the coolest party. Right. Yeah. So I had submitted myself for one of these days at Marymount. It was my junior year of um, high school. And because of my experiences with the youth theater and the directors and choreographers that I had met who came up from New York, I had people that I could go visit with. My parents didn't have to come with me. So I had submitted for an orientation. I went down and stayed with a friend of mine um, who had been a lighting designer for one of the shows we did as youth theater who lived in the East Village. And I took myself from the East Village to the Upper East Side where Marymount was to go to this orientation. And when I walked in, the security guy was like, oh, that's been canceled. It's moved to another week. And I was like, I'm from Vermont. Like, this is what I'm here for. So lo and behold, I get the dean of students right in front of me. who's like, we are so sorry. You clearly didn't get the message. And because obviously this is before internet and anything like that. Yeah, yeah. She's like, we're going to take care of you today. You're getting your own orientation. So I met with her. I met with the head of the dance department because I told her I was interested in dance. I met the head of the theater department. They had a student take me on a tour of the dorms. I got my own personal like experience. And I think I really like was able to make an impression at that point so that when it came time for the actual audition process, they were already familiar with me. Um, they already knew my intentions of like, I want to do dance, but I want to do other things. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it made for a very lucky situation. And I subsequently did get some scholarship as a dancer and I also got a leadership leadership scholarship and was able to like take care of like a good majority of college payments. I you were a savvy. You've always been savvy then. Your savviness because you saw uh, you saw that I think you needed to make money in a tough field. You said, okay, if I do dance, they're going to give me money. Right. That's, well, really, that's pretty, it was about... That's pretty self-aware for a young 17-year-old, you know? <laughs> what it was really about, though... That's very smart. ...was not really thinking about the money, but it was about wanting to be sure that I was able to go. Like, yeah. my goal was I need to get to college 
I need to do it in New York City. And I didn't want there to be any chance that I could be unable Not to do having it. To have it. And yeah. the only two things were number one, I needed to be accepted talent wise. Mm-hmm. And number two, I needed to make sure financially it was going to work because I could have easily gone to school in Vermont where they have all these programs. You pay basically nothing if you're an in-state, you know, college attendee. So I needed to make sure those two things were, were certain. So that was really where the decision to go in as dancer came into play because I knew they would be more willing to like secure my standing mm-hmm. if I was a male dancer because there's so few. There's so few, yeah. yeah. And they were like, we need you. Yeah. You're coming here. Yeah. They, <laughs> you were interviewing them, but they were, yeah. they were luring you in. Yes. Which is, that's a, that's a very renowned school. Yeah. So many actors, dancers, musicians, even a lot of musicians, everybody goes there. Everything. I mean, it, when I was there in the 90s, it was still very small, mm-hmm. but it has grown exponentially over the last 20 years, um, and now it's gotten more of a name for itself, for sure. So you, you just crushed it, and then Japan called you and said, you're going on tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fast forward. Um, so I graduated, and I was lucky enough that I had honed my three skills enough that I was castable from the get-go. And I worked um, fairly consistently from graduation until um, about seven years. And there's a little bit of a story going into the, the Japan thing too because I had auditioned for it the prior year and didn't get cast because they said I wasn't rock and roll enough. Ooh. And that hurt me. Like, I was like, ugh. <laughs> How dare I'm you? I'm not rock and roll, <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. So, that's hard. I had a good friend who was an actress and whose um, significant other was a band person in a lot of Broadway shows but specifically like rock shows yeah and he also was a music teacher um, and I said I told her about the audition and how I was pissed that they told me I wasn't rock and roll enough and she said well you know maybe you need to just work on your style so I started working with her significant other dude and you know he was like alright pick one of your favorite rock songs and I was like, uh, and he's like, all right, start with your favorite rock band. And I was like, the Beatles. And he's like, all right, now pick a, a rocky, you know, rocking Beatles song. And um, we did Oh Darling. Beautiful song. And he was like, all right, now just start singing it. And he's like, pling, 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 here's your note. Now just start singing it. And then, like, we worked through it on, like, my presentation and my way of, like, I was a little too polished from time to time and like he was like helping me relax essentially and after working with him for a couple months the next shows I booked were like the Who's Tommy Jesus Christ Superstar you know like all of this like actual like rock pop stuff the tours or on Broadway no just like regional stuff regional shows 
And so when the next year came around and the auditions for Japan happened, I was like, I'm going back. And I got the gig. And what, so were you specifically cast in a rock and roll show I, for that? I was a blues brother. Oh, man. I was cast as Elwood Blues. That's a good. That's pretty. That's as rock. That's pre rock and roll. You know. Yeah. That's like blue. Yeah. What is rock and roll based on? Yeah. 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 And, and then uh, that show yeah. ran in Japan. Yeah, it was at Universal Studios. So they have like you know all of their atmosphere stuff. And this was the the Blues Brothers part of the atmosphere show. Now, what's different about Universal Studios Japan as opposed to Universal Studios in the states is. Theme parks are not, like, the Americans don't go to the theme parks for the shows necessarily. Like, they go for the rides and the entertainment, but they're not, like, they don't look at the people on stage in theme parks and go, they're stars, like, there's an award ceremony for best theme park performers. That doesn't happen. In Japan, theme park performers are stars. They're... Yeah infatuated with Western culture and specifically because Universal Studios is a movie and television based theme park. They're infatuated with the characters so much so that like immediately when I arrived in Japan and rehearsed for three weeks and we did like one week of shows there were already like web pages like nicknaming each of us like I was called Prince for whatever reason they decided I was like the Prince of Blues Brothers it was fascinating and they you know told us about watch out for the crazy fans and they can get pretty intense <laughs> um, which was true I mean they would show up you know on our so there was a ferry between where we lived and where Universal Studios was and they would show up on like our side of the ferry not the Universal Studio side, like waiting for you and wanting autographs and to give you little albums of photos they took during your show. And oh my gosh. I had like <clears throat> somebody had taken a, a Charlie Brown like bobblehead doll and like cut out Blues Brothers black suit, hat, and sunglasses and like glued them to the Charlie Brown doll and like given it to me like, You're Elwood, this is you. Intense. <laughs> Very autographs. Yeah. yeah, this is. <laughs> yeah, this is very rock star rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the whole the whole line of "I'm big in Japan" is actually a real thing because you can you are big. In you Japan, can be yeah. very big in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's cool. I. Oh, wow! I went to Disneyland. It, Tokyo, Tokyo, Disney, Disney Tokyo, mm-hmm. Disney Tokyo, and I went with uh, my friend who's like this six six tall blonde guy, <clears throat> and he was a drummer. He's like a metal drummer, and I remember that we did the Space Mountain ride, uh-huh. and we were just screaming like obnoxious sixteen year old, <laughs> yeah. and we were screaming. Yeah. Like when the ride wasn't even moving, yeah. you know what I mean. Like so, we're <laughs> preemptively, <just laughs> preemptively, and then we came into the station, and we were still screaming, yeah. and the and then they applauded us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I, so, I like, guarantee I you, know. every single person on that ride was only focused on what you guys were doing, and it they was, probably missed the ride completely themselves. It was. 
And that was a small glimmer because I feel like that's at the height of my complete obnoxious phase, as most young people are. But that's interesting to know because it was a very different experience than the American theme parks. And I haven't even ever like thought about it the way you just put that in a new light for yeah. me, you know, a new... And then how many years did you stay in Japan? I was there for two years, 05, 06. 05 and 06. And it's a... You probably slept in a futon, right? No, so... Or was it American accommodation? They, they, like, the best part about that job was when you arrived in Japan, you had a bank account and a bank card. You had a cell phone. You had a bike. You had a single-person apartment. Um, like, essentially a studio, one-bedroomy, weird kind of setup, but you had a full-size bed and a couch and television table. You had a kitchen with dishes. You had a full bathroom, which the bathroom was my absolute favorite part because they have, like, a separate room for the shower and bathtub. Yeah. Which... If there's any way in my future that I can have a house or an apartment that that's what my bathroom is like, I would transport my Japanese bathroom to wherever I live. Um, yeah, so you were set up. Because their bathing thing is that you do the, the shower. Yeah, like the you shower first. shower, yeah. right? And then you get into the and then you get into hot water, right? Like, well, yeah, but this is obviously your own... Yeah, your you had your tub. Own yeah, tub. but the, their idea of bathing is like you clean yourself first, and then you get into hot water and like use the the bath as like a relaxation portion of it. Yeah, they're dialed in. Yeah, <laughs> this is, this quality is like, of life there is like important. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing I remember, well, it's not that shocking, but it's like how you're you never. Take your shoes anywhere. I mean, this right, is like yeah. known you stuff. You drop your shoes at the door at well, all how times. How serious? Very serious. People are about this. Very yeah. serious. It's so serious that they have onsens, which are these big bathhouse places um, that are separated men and women. You have to be fully comfortable with your body because you go in completely naked and. It's the same setup where you have like little areas where you sit and you shower off and then they have hot tubs where you just relax and but if you need to use the restroom at any time and you go up to the restroom there is a lineup of plastic sandals that you have to put on the sandals to go into the restroom use the restroom come out drop the sandals and then go. <laughs> and they also yes. have these at like restaurants what we would call like a diner like a basic American foods place is called Izakaya in Japanese and it's your basic Japanese restaurant with all the typical Japanese foods and you take your shoes off to sit at the table which is usually low to the floor but has like a little hole underneath so you can drop your feet down mm. but if you go to the restroom you walk over to the restroom and there's sandals that you put on to go into the restroom and then take them and yeah. then you new sandals yes yeah and isn't I have a, such a strong memory of this is that you don't, um, when you go into the bedroom portion, you could, you would leave the sandals off. Yeah. And then, so you're barefoot only yeah. in where you sleep. Uh, true, right? but you can, most people just leave their shoes at the door. Yeah. So you're barefoot or, you know, stocking feet with socks on, um, throughout the house. Or you would have your house shoes if you needed them. Yeah. It's such a, 
clean and smart thing. You yeah. Know? It's, it's like they, yeah. They thought about it and everybody agreed on it. It is one of the cleanest countries anywhere. Like, there's never trash on the ground. That's Even people, trash. and there's a lot of smoking there. A lot of people smoke. Everybody they, smokes, yeah. They don't have rules about where you can and can't smoke. You can pretty much smoke anywhere. But you literally won't see any cigarette butts on the ground because they carry <clears throat> they carry these like plasticky I don't know how to describe it, but it's like a pouch that's plasticky but also sort of insulated. And they will sit outside and smoke and they'll ash in the pouch. And then when they're done, they put the cigarette in the pouch and then they squeeze it to put the butt out. And then they put that in their pocket. They carry their own yeah, butts with them. Yeah, they carry their own trash with them. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. They really remind me of the Germans. Like the whole respectful, clean, everybody's a part of the same team. We're in this together. Like we're going to... Yeah. And then they have dominating economies because of that. And they, the workforce. I mean, it's a, it starts at the cigarette. Yeah. But leads into, you yeah. know, world products like Honda. And yeah. BMW or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So, you wanted to leave New York after all this time. You wanted to go to Japan. Was that yeah. I, you know, when I was in the performance world, New York was always my home, but I wanted every contract that took me wherever. So, when I started working in 1998, all the shows that I did were regional. I went to I went to back to Vermont. I went to Ohio. Um, I went to Florida. I did a cruise ship for a year. Um, I went all over the place. I did a national tour, children's theater, and so leaving New York to do gigs was never a problem. Yeah. I always wanted it, and I always knew that I would be coming back. Mm-hmm. Because New York's always there. New York's always home for you. Yeah. yeah. It was never going back to Vermont. It was never an option. No. Um, Vermont is a beautiful place, and I'm so lucky to have had that as part of my life. And I love to go visit because it's beautiful and relaxing, and it feels like vacation. Um, I'm not ready to live there again. I think it's it would be a cool place to retire Probably. Yeah. Just cold. Yeah. Maybe a little cold. Eh, it's all right. <laughs> I can deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I love I love New York. And I think as a performer, that is half of what got me into it is like, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see things. I want to get out of Well, because the thing is, is if you can do New York, you can do anything. You can. It's an international proving ground. Yeah. It's like you can go anywhere. Even in Japan, when I was there... You know, people would ask you where you're from, and you'd say New York, and they'd say like like New York City. Yeah, I've li- lived there most of my life. And they're like, oh, and then they call you City Boy. <laughs> like this is City Boy. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, so yeah, and you, I always that you're you were in the toughest business. That's the toughest business. Hundred percent. Because there's. As a musician, I always found that I, you know, you could do different things. You could go into resale. Yeah. We could teach, which is what I chose. You know, I was teaching kids, which yeah. I still do and I love. Yeah. You could go into the studio. Yeah. You don't always have to be a frontline 
performer. You were you headed to the direct front line. I did. Um, it was what felt right to me. It was the only thing I knew. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being in college, and my first musical theater teacher um, sort of asked us all like why we were there, and I said. It's the only thing I know. I don't know anything else. I don't know sitting in a cubicle all day. I don't know, you know, any other way of life but this. So I need to figure out all of the ins and outs so that I can continue to do this for as long as possible. Now, when I came back from Japan, um, and I tried to, like, reacclimate to the United States to my life um, I still performed for like another year a year and a half but my priorities had changed my life had changed Japan was just so life altering to me that I f- you know before Japan I was all or nothing after Japan I was <laughs> I'm cool. I'm good. Like, I've lived my life and I've done great things. Yeah. And um, it's entirely possible that uh, stability <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, life insurance, health insurance, things like that, um, retirement were like suddenly becoming things I needed to think about, which I think is ultimately why um, I ended up switching from performance to concierge work makes sense yeah it all happens but obviously all of these these experiences informed your yes I mean I use I call upon premier concierge in New York City yeah I call upon the things I learned from performing arts every day yeah improvisation Number um, one, yes. Yeah. I like that you said that number one. Because yeah. You have to call upon that improv skill multiple times a day because something will come at you and you don't know how to deal with it, but you're not going to let that other person know. You're going to say yes, and I'll talk to you in a minute. <laughs> and then you're going to go into the background and be like, how the hell am I going to deal with this? And you freak out and you figure it out. And then you come back and be like, yes, here's your answer. And here is... <laughs> The yeah, and it's also the delivery of that, like being very, you know, confident and, you know, charming. <laughs> These are all things that you, you know, pick up from from being on stage. Being when on you stage, don't want to be on stage, but the show must go on. Yeah, you know, discipline. discipline of like it has to be done and it has to be done right. There's no slacking off. Mm-hmm. Dance. That's like dance through and through. I used to talk about it with my friends before I had another career. Um, you know, a lot of people do a lot of temp work and things like that when they're performers just to like make ends meet. And the reason that 90% of the people who are temping are performers is because we can pick up anything fast, we're disciplined to get it done right, and we're charming enough to be pleasant and not a dick. Yeah, you know? not a drag. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, I mean, I don't want you to speak out of school, but you got to give us you got to give us a juicy story of uh, a ridiculous <laughs> request 
And it could be a fantastical one, because I know this is... Well, no, you know, the best... Ridiculous request of, like, what you're faced with, where you're like, yes, yeah, I'll be back in a minute. And yeah. then you're like, what the... Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, most of it is... And the, it, it's usually the most taxing and the most rewarding, because, like, I had a client who, from the moment we met, was just super nice. And they reached out to me not even because they were coming to the store to shop, um, but that he was like, I don't get enough time with my wife. I'm constantly traveling. I have this seven-day stretch off, and I want to make it all about her and do, like, something amazing. Mm. He's like, my private jet will land at Teterboro on this day at this time, and we have to fly out on this day and this time. Take care of everything in between. <laughs> I was like, sorry, what? <laughs> Seven days? Yeah. So, like, find a hotel, book it, make all the dining plans, make entertainment plans, and make it all magical and, and amazing. And, you know, send me an itinerary in 24 hours. <laughs> Anthony. Yeah. 24 hours? Yeah. But it was awesome. It was like, I okay, was stressed us, out. Walk us through this. I mean, you, what, so what, I, what are you doing in New York in seven days? That's all kind of a lot of time, too, even. Yeah, you know? well, so... And to, where are these characters from? Are they European or no? They're well. They are not Southern American. They are not American born. I want to say they were from the Middle East somewhere. Yeah, but they live in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Okay, so they're urban. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, had been living here, I think, a long time at this point, and so they were quote-unquote Americanized, you know, to all of that sort of thing. And they'd been to New York several times, so it wasn't like I was planning their first trip ever to New York. Yeah, this it was just like he Empire wanted State to... Building, Statue of Liberty, Circle Line. Right, no. Yeah. No, so basically it was like, all right, find the hotel, which all I did was look That's back the... into their history of coming to events and things and find out where they stayed and what room they stayed in, call the hotel, I have these clients, they're coming back, they need a week, do you have it? Yes, book it. Then, you know, I put together a list of restaurants that I thought were awesome. A couple different Broadway shows that I thought were awesome. Um, called a personal shopper at Bergdorf's and said, you know, let's set up an afternoon where the missus can go and just like hang, yeah, have a shopping spree, but like privately. Um, here's some museum. Um, Exhibits that would be worthwhile. And uh, I kind of like loosely arranged them in an order, but basically said like any of this is interchangeable. It's interchangeable stuff, yeah. And then I sent it off. He like moved some things around and corrected this or that. And then was like, I'm happy with this. And I was like, great. And then I confirmed it all. And then I added the extra touch of like having a bouquet of her favorite flowers in the hotel room when they arrived. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, having, you know, I, they always particularly liked a particular bottled water and, you know, telling the car service that was going to be driving them around for the week, make sure you have this water in the car at all times. You know, just tying up the loose ends and Tiny making it... things that make it just yeah. really perfect for people. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So, what's your top three restaurants in New York City? For you personally, not for a client. Right. Where is Anthony? Well, you know, the thing is, is I've been so lucky. As a concierge, when you frequently book clients at certain restaurants, the restaurants want to thank you. So I've been able to dine at some pretty you've fantastic been, I places. I know you've been to every, every um, hot spot. So I would say definitely two of my experiences are based on the fact that I've sent clients there. Um, it's not a place I would be able to just go to for dinner one night. <laughs> but I've been lucky enough to dine there, and the dining experience was amazing. One of them was Per Se, which is like, you know, top end, like most possibly most expensive in the city. It's a 13-course, like three-hour meal experience. And then um, last year, uh, two years ago, for my 40th birthday... Um, I got to go to Danielle and Chef Balud like, came to the table and was like, nice to see you. Hello, Anthony. <laughs> we love all, you know, all your clients. Um, they took me into the kitchen. Like, really awesome experience. Wow. Yeah. Those are very special experiences. Very special experiences. And then, like, a place that I think is awesome and isn't necessarily like you know top of the line for the city but I love the Benjamin group they have two steakhouses and a like seafood steakhouse they've just got really great food and the service is always great you feel like you're part of the family yeah um <clears throat> and then the Benjamin know, Group or the Benjamin House. So there's the, Benjamin Steak, Benjamin Prime, and Seafire Grill. Okay, they're all part of the Benjamin Group. And then um, I still have my like sushi cravings, and that is probably the most basic answer, which is Kodama on 45th and 9th, uh, between 8th and 9th. Mm -hmm. Closest to traditional Japanese, Japanese food in the city. Mm. It's good. I have only real uh, a few times, but not that many, Anthony, but one time. Do you know Aquavit? Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel and I went there, and I was just feeling sassy, I think. And I was like, let's just do this. Once. Yeah. Let's do this tasting Fancy. menu with the wine yeah. pairings, yeah. which is... Probably how much money I make in a month. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. Um, but the tastes. Yeah. And the treatment. Yeah. And and um, we became friendly with the waiter because I was just trying to bust his balls and break him down because they, you know, like you know, they, they you have this character. And I'm like, no, no, no. Tell me the real. Yeah. Tell me the inside stuff because I was trying to make the most. Yeah obvious jokes. I was like, how many times have you heard that joke? Right. You know? <clears throat> and that was, um, 
really honestly like a life-altering yeah. kind of experience. There's no better way to dine out than having the restaurant just be like, no menus, we're just going to put food in front of you, tell you what it is, and then you can dig in and yeah. enjoy. Like, that's the only way to dine, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, f- uh, fuck menus. I don't want to look at a menu. I don't want to make a decision. I'm terrible at decisions, to be perfectly honest, even it's though... decision kind fatigue, of my, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's my job to make decisions for others. I don't care about myself. Like, yeah. just put something in front of me. Make it good. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, because you, you've seen that side. Uh, I mean, that's your job. You know yeah. it at an unbelievable level. I yeah. can't only imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I feel like Rachel and I always do that when we're traveling, mm. right? Because you're like, well, this is vacation. This is what we're doing. And when, in your home city, you're not as inspired. It's like, well, let's just go to the diner and get eggs. And yeah. Why would we? But that was the one time in New York, and uh, we had come back from Sweden. Nice. So it was like the search for the Swedish yeah. fish, just like the Japanese fish, where uh-huh. you're like, wow, something was different. Uh-huh. I didn't eat sushi after I came back from Japan. I didn't eat sushi in the States for like two or three years. Well, yeah, because like it's the idea of sushi over here is completely different. Like, you go over to Japan, you're not getting like mango in your roll. Like, there's. <laughs> Nobody, you put mango on your fish in Japan and they're like, what? Like, sushi is fish and rice and seaweed. Like, keep it simple. And that's the way I like it. Yeah. I don't need the, like, crazy wrapped in bacon with slivers of avocado and, you know, anything on top. I just want traditional ingredients sushi. Traditional stuff. I feel that way about, like, the whole beer thing, right? Mm. Like, it's like, I just want a simple yeah. beer that's yeah. really high quality. Yeah. Like Japanese beer and yeah. German beer. Yeah. In my mind, they're so tied. They're like these cultures. But that's a true thing. And same thing, same thing with coffee. We got a little crazy with the coffee, mm-hmm. putting flavors mm-hmm. in. It's now it's just like, I could just use a simple coffee, you know? What's next? What's next for the concierge scene, huh? Well, um, how, how has, like, online... Could they eliminate your job by just being online, or there's no there's no replacement for the human touch? That's what it comes down to. Um, you know, anybody can Google yeah. to find out what's happening and Yelp and all of that. Oh, Yelp! But wait, to- Anthony's quick take on Yelp. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> do you write Yelp reviews? I do. You do have a not. secret Yelp account? Absolutely yeah. not. I despise Yelp. I think it's the stupidest thing. <laughs> I mean. There are far too many people who have a stick up their butt yes. and just want to rant and rave about everything. And they found a platform. And yep. now they have this platform to do so, and I don't buy any of it. Like, everybody's like, no, we got to get some more good Yelp reviews so that, you know, people are drawn to us. And, like, it doesn't... Me, personally, I just... I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. And I, maybe it's because I am a concierge and I can appreciate the power of what it means to be a concierge, but I would rather talk face-to-face to somebody about, I went, here's what I thought, because I can read your actual responses, mm-hmm. like a human connection thing, 
better than reading somebody's words that I've never met before. Yeah. And I feel that way about, you know, the job of the concierge. Now, it's a bit of an issue, actually, in New York City specifically right now. There are several hotels that have fired their entire concierge team because they're outsourcing these concierge groups that have started. Interesting. Uh, where they no longer like hire a concierge that belongs to their hotel. They pay a group to put somebody there or be an online source where like the people from the hotel aren't even talking to you face to face. When they book a room online, they get an email that's like, hey, we heard you're coming to New York. If you need anything, send us an email. Sincerely, your concierge team, but it's from a hired out source. And so, um, yeah, it's it's becoming a bit of an issue. So basically, instead of each hotel, yeah. So now there's only tw- the number of concierges is just diminished. Well, the number Greatly of though. jobs available to concierges is diminishing because they're hiring people to sit at a desk and Google everything all day, so that you don't have the human connection. You're just churning out answers. You know, they all, all via email. They're yeah. all sitting on at desks and they have these huge binders that are like Italian restaurant recommendations, sushi recommendations, whatever. And they just flip to that section and they go, um, okay, this place our company says this place is highest rated. But that person may not have actually been there. Yeah. And I think that's where you lose true, you know, true human. Mm. Contact yeah. human to human life, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, I'll be on the lookout for it then. Yeah. When we we stayed at the Ritz in San Francisco <clears throat> on our honeymoon, nice. And I, the concierge was very helpful. Yeah, the the Ritz Carlton group are one of my favorites in the hospitality world. They always have uh, a solid lock on their brand of hospitality. And they don't have any intentions of making it any watered down version of that, which I respect gratefully. Mm. There you go. Yeah. That makes sense. Because that that stuff is important. That's what we keep losing. We keep getting further and further away from human connection. The human connection, yeah. That's kind of what this is about. I feel yeah. like too. Like the pod. What I like about the podcast thing is it's not a two minute news blip on like here's this really cool guy. Yeah. He does Tiffany's. Right. He does all this stuff. Right. See you next week. Like yeah. it's like <laughs> wait, who are you? What's, what yeah. did you really do? You're trained in all these things. And you have all of these life experiences that have created who you are and what you have to offer. Like, that just doesn't happen. Correct. <laughs> like, you don't just get to be that guy. You know? yeah. like, it takes massive amounts of life experience, you know? Yeah, and I guess going back to your previous question of, like, what's next, um, I've been fascinated by ancestry work for the last couple of years. Interesting. And... Had a huge boost about a year ago when I like successfully connected to like my mom's first cousins in England and Canada and people she'd never 
or might have met when she was really young, but never had a relationship with, and was able to like via the beautiful platform of social media like connect us all into this group where now all my cousins here and all these cousins out there are in like one sort of social media group and they've posted all of these old photos from like 100 years ago and it's just been great and because of that I was able to successfully become an Irish citizen what? So I now have my official Irish citizenship. You have a dual citizenship. Yeah. And I therefore can have an Irish passport, which is also an EU passport. Yes. So I can travel, work, and live anywhere in the EU and Ireland um, whenever I want. That's big news. It's big news. So, I have now a lot of questions, only because I'm fascinated by this. Currently, yeah. did your... Okay, first question. Did your Irish family come in through Canada? Is that why you dropped Canada? Or did they come in through New York and then spread to Canada that way? So, here's the thing. My, my mother's parents, who landed here in Breezy Point, yes, mile down the road, um, dad was born in Ireland moved from Ireland to New York. Mom was of Irish parents, but born in Liverpool, England, because they had moved to Liverpool for work mm. in the 1880s. And Grandma, Mom, was brought to New York because her uncle, Irish-born uncle, was living in New York in the 19, early 1900s. And when she was 19 years old, which was 26, 27, 1927, she was brought over by him to work in New York City and live. She had many, she was oldest of 11 kids, or second oldest of 11 kids. And so there were literal children that were like, five, six years old when she was 19 and leaving. Mm -hmm. One of those little ones immigrated to Canada when he was young and settled there. So his family and children are the Canadian connection. Interesting, yeah. And the siblings who stayed in Liverpool, um, only two of them had kids of their own. And those cousins are the ones who live currently still in England. Um, but with Ireland, if you have a grandparent that was born there and you can prove it with all the paperwork, you can claim Irish, Irish citizenship. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's and then you. What kind of did it? What kind of sparked this? Was it just the internet? And you were like, "This is." Am I related to this person? And then it kind of just snowballed. And then you were like, "I mean, I'm we were very lucky." Years ago, there was a sort of distant family friend slash cousin who worked for Aer Lingus in like the sixties, seventies. And he, anytime he was in New York, he was always visiting my family out here. And at some point, he was prompted or decided to type out 
like a family history as far back as he could go, which was like early 1800s. But it was all like family members, kids, wives, what happened, all that kind of a thing. So when my mom sort of dug that up one day, I went to Ancestry.com and just started plugging all the names in and the dates that were written there. And you just get all of this information that starts flying at you, which are mostly like census lists and things like that. And the amazing thing about census lists is that they're often like, not only they tell you where they live, like the street they were on, but also like who their neighbors were. And it sometimes it'll say like, what was your father's name? What was your mother's name? Kind of a thing. And you can find out so much more information than you had because of what's on the document. Um, and so it just started exponentially growing like that. Now, in the midst of all of this, we had a very large change in the political climate of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been in my current position for eight years. Um, I still have a passion for travel. Mm-hmm. And I think a whole bunch of things just kind of rolling into one, um, it just made sense. You know, if I can have this other passport, which would grant me the opportunity where I don't have to be a visitor. On a if, work yeah. visa or something. You right, if actually- I actually go there and find an opportunity that could keep me there, why not? Why not? For yeah. a few years or yeah. a few months or whatever. Months. Whatever the case may be. And with this concierge business, I've made so many connections to concierge in Internationally. Yeah, internationally. Yeah. So, you know, if I pop into Zurich one day and introduce myself to the chef concierge at whatever hotel there and say, you know, I'm kind of here and I don't have to go anywhere because I have the right to work here, can I intern with you for a while can I you know what can I do yeah to learn the ways that's very exciting yeah Anthony's savvy he's planning I like to keep my options open (laughs) (laughs) well I like that to explain to you why my English family my mother was Italian Uh and she passed about six years ago and but the silver lining of that is that I've come closer to my father's side of the family and they I'm learning they all immigrated in through Newfoundland mm-hmm. yep so there's all this Canadian yeah roots that I didn't really know about yep ironically I have a shirt with a yep. maple leaf and the word roots <laughs> on it right now so that feels weird feels but right yeah feels right. it feels so right so I thought that that was interesting because my the same thing with the Italian side is that they kind of split off and went some went to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just interesting how connected this all is, mm-hmm. you know, and clearly it was a much different time. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have other friends who are exploring the avenue that you just kind of talked about. Yeah. I have the last guest I had on this podcast, Paul Lauren, had that situation with his Italian side of his family. And he wasn't able, he's, he's in the process, he was like, he's supposed to be here, but the Italian government is working at a yeah. different speed. So you've, all, you've done all the steps, you actually have. I have what they call a foreign birth registered birth certificate, which basically means you are a citizen of the country, 
but you were born internationally. That is cool. Ireland, I feel, is just kind of cutting edge in all this, too. I mean, they're killing it these days. They're killing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> they were the first country to adapt um, gay marriage based on popular vote. Like, yeah. the people, ex Irish expats that was like all 10 years over the ago world. Too, right? I don't know if it was a 10, but it was like five or six years ago. Yeah. They literally in droves flew back to the country to vote so that they could successfully pass only by the people. The government was like, we're not doing this. We will, we will manage the vote, but you're telling us what you want. And the people voted, we want gay marriage to pass. Yeah. Similarly, they just did the same thing with abortion. They have now made abortion legal in the country because the people voted. That's amazing to me. That is amazing. Do you... Um have you been there recently or going? The last there? time I was there was probably like 15 years ago. Yeah. But to see family and make connections with no, family? No, it was actually it when like I was a on work. a cruise ship. Um, I did a world cruise for a year and we docked in Ireland like three times within the year, um, which was the last time I was there. Previously, when I, was, when I graduated college, I backpacked for three months. And I actually spent like three weeks in Ireland where I got to go and stay with family in the land and in the house where my grandfather was born and like really get to know. And was it in rural Ireland? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've heard so west, many, too, too many stories about this. The west coast of Ireland uh, near a place called Ackle Island uh, in a small town called Mulrani, uh, which is right on the water. Uh, I just remember sort of coming in, it was raining, but I remember the bus sort of coming in to the town and thinking to myself, this is why, I mean, I know Brigadoon is Scottish, but still, this is like, reminds me of like Brigadoon, the idea of this like beautiful little town that kind of comes out of the mist <laughs> on a cliffside by the water. Yeah. That's magical. Yeah. And I remember um, this little girl came across the street and she's like, Are you Anthony? Yes. Brought me up to the house, pouring rain, get inside, meeting cousins, what have you. And they're like, All right, well, let's go to the pub. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> yeah. So we go to the pub, which is fairly is it, busy for such a small place. What time of the day? I'm going to guess end? somewhere around seven, eight o'clock, six, seven, eight, okay. somewhere in there. Yeah. And. Got a, got a pint, had the little session band going, everybody's standing around, and I'm just kind of in, in amazement because it's all hitting me. Like, I am literally at the roots of my, my bloodline. Yeah. And I remember um, my mom's cousin's wife saying, you know, how do you feel? What are you thinking about? And I was like, do I have relatives here? And she was like, oh, you're, you're probably related to 90% of the room. <laughs> like, chances are somewhere in their blood, they've, one of them's married one of you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, got it. But uh, really awesome. That's, I feel, everybody who does the Irish, um, I have a friend who just came back, mm. family, yeah. Glatterhorn. Uh-huh. Dylan sure. Glatterhorn, like he has this incredibly Irish name. And he was talking about how he did the overnight flight, mm -hmm. arrived at 7 a.m., the 
first thing he goes and sees his family is yeah. it was a pint of Guinness. Mm -hmm. Then he said at 9 a.m. they gave him Jameson. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, this yeah, is yeah. so much day drinking yeah. before noon. Yeah, yeah. It's just like such a strong part of the culture as we sit across from a decrepit bar here in, yeah. <laughs> called the Irish Circle. And what is this one? Brendan's? Brendan's, like, yeah. It's like, well, this one looks open, though, I think. No. Certainly nope. not. Nope. Certainly not. <laughs> I can see inside. It's it's not anywhere near open. Um, yeah, I mean, they their social atmosphere is the pub. That's where they congregate. That's where they meet their friends and talk. Um, also in Ireland, the pubs close early. Early, yeah. Like 9 p.m. early, 10 p.m. early, because far too many people will just keep drinking all night, and that's where terrible things happen. Yeah. So they will start ringing that bell and say, everybody get the fuck out, <laughs> you yeah. know? And then you have to like either queue up for a taxi or wait for a bus or it's a, it's an interesting experience, but it's awesome at the same time. There's such a hard sense of community and, you know, respect. Um, it's great. And that's kind of maybe maybe a possible next avenue for Anthony is yeah maybe a hang in Ireland maybe yeah. a job in the EU yeah. maybe uh, you never know you never know yeah you, that option is now you have now an open road I do I do have you been to Stockholm to Sweden Speaking I have of? I've been all over Scandinavia well, did you do you I love that area yeah for sure yeah I always think that like from whatever little traveling I've done I felt that if I was an American I could you could move to Stockholm and it would be almost like a seamless because everybody speaks English so yeah. well we, I feel the same way about Holland too yeah Holland is the same like what's interesting about non English speaking countries and the way they speak English places like Holland and um, Scandinavia often hired Americans to teach English. Yes. And so the accents that most of those people have when they speak English sound American. There are other parts of the world where they, like, where they've hired British people to teach English. So when they speak English, they have a British accent. One of my friends in Japan um, spent a year in Australia. So when she speaks English, she sounds Australian. She sounds Australian. It's fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. And similarly, when I speak Japanese to Japanese people, they often ask me, did I learn my Japanese in Osaka because of the, I guess, accent that I use? Because there's Osaka's got this thing called Osaka Ben, which is essentially like Osaka version of Japanese. It's a little bit more relaxed and... Um, Colloquial yeah. kind of yeah. street linguistics. Street linguistics is an interesting thing. That's no that that is fascinating. That's fascinating that you say that too because I remember being in Stockholm and being on the train and a woman was on the phone next to me. So that's the thing right there is that yeah. the service worked underground. Right, sure. She was on the phone <laughs> on the train, but very polite. Uh -huh. And I was listening to her talk and I said, "This woman is from Boston. She's uh -huh. an American. Yeah, she's speaking." perfect Boston uh -huh. accent or yeah. like New England accent yeah. not yeah. you know like a regional dialect right yeah you know 
and then no, she was Swedish. Yeah. Because I was like, are you are you from Boston? Yeah. <laughs> no, she's Swedish. She clearly learned. Yeah. From some. No, I just spent four town. years at you know at BU Harvard. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I was like, you have perfect Boston English. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's fascinating, and that's cool. That's such an exciting. I always wanted to. Well, my current plan is to retire into a, a European. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if we're ever going to get to retire. I don't. Probably think not. No. Yeah, we're yeah. just going to keep working. But like, I think the government is currently spending our retirement. So. But we can work nicely and. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is like I I see. Like a small European village, with like a comfortable living situation, and the opportunity to like work at a shop, you know, run a cashier, maybe sling a drink or two, who knows, like something very simple and quiet as like the way to come down off of this high of life. Like, obviously I'm not there yet, but if I have to find a place where I can continue to work into my old age because I have to, I see that much more than I see like anything else in this country. Doing the hustle of yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have that in common. Yeah. Uh, because we grew up in such a relaxed environment, right? That there's a there's a piece of I mean New York is the best of the best. Of yeah. The best. But there is a piece of me that also sees that at some point in time I need to unplug from the grid. Yeah. The, yeah. I can't just be like mainlining yeah. Manhattan. Like exactly. I, I look at people in their 80s or something I'm like you're crazy how are you still here yeah you must have an enormous amount of money to be living comfortably in this (laughs) for real (laughs) like that's different yeah right like well the other thing is is that generation had things called pensions which don't exist anymore like they're getting their social security checks they're getting whatever retirement they built for themselves and they're getting a pension check that their company is because you know, in their generation, you know, you got a job in your early 20s and you stayed there until you retired. So they had the best of all the worlds. Um, all of that is going away now for us. And yeah. we're no longer able to rely on those plans, which sucks, but it's what's happening. It's, it is what it is. Yeah, it's the reality. We're all living in it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. No, this is great. This is good. You're my first non-musician. Ah. So I feel like this is this is good. But you're still an artist and a performer and like you I, I call it low-key iconic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> low-key iconic. I am big in Japan. That's a real thing. I loved that. That's a Yeah. Japan. And now you're gonna You've obviously been to Europe a ton of times. So I have. It's it's ultimate living. It feels yeah. like. We'll see what happens. We'll Looking what forward happens. to it. Today Talk to you in ten years. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be back for Secret Famous Anthony Part Two <laughs> after this. And today we have a whole day of enjoying Rockaway Beach and beers and the July Fourth scene. Yeah, this is going to be. I'm glad we got sunscreen to start the day out. Hundred percent. hundred. Let's do it. Percent sunscreen. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Paul. Guys, how good is Anthony? He's so entertaining and so funny. 
All those stories of Japan. Come on! So good. So good. Opening with the Vanilla Ice track. Let's close it out with a little Vanilla Ice. That song is hot fire. I remember not really understanding it as a child. I think it was, I was just like, I don't know about this song. But then I re-listened to it. I was like, no, the flow is hot. The beat is hot. It's hot. It's a hot track, man. Why did I not like Vanilla Ice? I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember why. I couldn't remember. Anyway, we got the hats coming. We got the stickers coming. We got the Gmail coming. No, I just, I'm just going to keep it under my own name. Everybody, thank you for checking this out. Have a wonderful crushing day and enjoy this track. Talk to you soon. We got some hot guests coming. Hot guests. Hot guests. Keep it really real. One. VIP. Let's kick it. Sit back with my brand new invention Something grabs a hold of me tightly Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know Turn off the lights and I'll glow To the extreme I rock a mic like a vandal Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle Dance! Caress the speaker that booms I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom Deadly! When I play a dope melody Anything less than the best is a felony Love it or leave it You better gain weight You better hit bulls out a kid don't play If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it Yo, so I continue to A1A Girls were hot, wearing less than bikinis Rock men lovers, driving Lamborghinis Jealous, cause I'm out getting mine Shade with the gauge and vanilla with the nine Ready for the chumps on the wall The chumps acting ill because they're full of eight ball Gunshots, ranged out like a bell I grabbed my nine, all I heard was shells Falling on the concrete real fast Jumped in my car, slammed on the gas Bumper to bumper, the avenue's packed I'm trying to get away before the jack is jacked on the scene, you know what I mean? They passed me up, could run it all the dope beans. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Why DJ revolves it? Ice, ice, baby. 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 Ice, ice, baby.
Let's get out of here. Word to your mother. Ice, ice, baby,